I am, uh, as we sing that song, and I come up just to read scripture, trusting Jesus and thus saith the Lord. We are a church who doesn't uh, engage in a whole lot of other things other than emphasizing gathering in worship to sing of the gospel of the reign of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his word and let that transform our hearts so when we go out and do our work, it changes the world. And we trust God that he is going to do that. And as Sam had said, for 50 years, the, the government said it was okay to kill unborn children. And the way our country has been going for the last 10 years even, again, as Sam said, I had no comprehension that this could possibly happen, overturning this court decision. And then out of nowhere, God says, I'm making it happen. That's crazy. And it happens just because he does what he wants. The nations rage, Psalm 2 says, but the Lord stands in derision and laughs at the planning of the nations. And all it reminds us to do is kiss the sun, proclaim his word. So with that confidence that God transforms lives and cultures by his own will, read with me, follow along with me in Psalm 56 as we prepare to hear this word from our brother Patrick. To the choir master. According to the dove of far-off terebinths, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call this I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sam said he wasn't going to steal my thunder in my sermon, but he sang them my whole sermon. <laughs> so it's an honor and privilege to be up here to open God's word with you. Will you join me in prayer before we get into it? Lord God, we do long to trust thee more, and we do believe, would you help our unbelief? We know your word does not return void. We know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. 
So would you speak that to us? And may our hearts be strengthened by grace as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, hear this. I think that all the silence is worse than all the violence. Fear is such a weak emotion, that's why I despise it. We're scared of almost everything, afraid to even tell the truth. So scared of what you think of me, I'm scared of even telling you. Sometimes I'm like the only person I feel safe to tell it to. I'm locked inside a cell in me. I know that there's a jail in you. Those words, from Lupe Fiasco, not from me. I wish I could write like that. <laughs> they nail what fear has done to us. Fear shackles. It drives us inward. And when we're controlled by fear, it's like we're in a cell in a jail. And if fear can be defined as an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief or expectation of impending danger, evil, or pain, and then fear in itself is not a bad thing. It's designed by God. It can and should drive us toward goodness and life and safety. But our fear, like other strong emotions, can go haywire, haywire and like Lupe said, imprison us. So our question today is how do we get free? How do we fight fear? So I'm going to look at three things from our text. What we fear, why we fear, and how we fight. What we fear, why we fear, how we fight fear. First, look at what we fear. To do that, let's understand David's context here. Look at the title of the psalm. A miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So David, he had become a great Israelite warrior, but before he became king, he fled from the current king Saul multiple times. And twice he fled to Gath, which is one of the five major cities in Philistia, some of the long-standing enemies of Israel. And this is where the king of the Philistines, Achish, resided. David had slain one of their greatest warriors, Goliath. So the fear of Saul must have been very great indeed if he resorted to fleeing into enemy territory in order to escape Saul. Now whether he tried to slip in unnoticed or if he appealed to the king directly, it didn't work out for him. The people of Gath recognize him and they point out to Achish, the great warrior who our enemies celebrate and sing of as a folk hero, they dance to a song about him slaying his ten thousands. That's the one that's here. Achish, our people are part of those tens of thousands. What is he doing here? Let's kill him and be done with it. So David, backed against the wall when he appears before Achish, he pleads insanity. He flips a switch and he starts spitting and drooling all over himself, drooling down his beard, his beard, it says in 1 Samuel 21. He probably starts babbling about nonsense, probably talking about the end of the world, and starts buying up billboards about the mystical math equation he discovered to find out when Jesus comes back. And the king gets frustrated that his people brought him just another crazy man. We don't know exactly what happened in between him appearing before the king and him escaping Gath, but it seems likely maybe they held him captive for a time as they tried to figure out what to do with him. And that's where our psalm today brings us. We get inside the head and the heart of this man in his rather desperate and lonely situation. Far from home, 
alone. This is before any of his men came and gathered around him in the wilderness. Far from home, trapped in enemy territory. Attacked, oppressed, surrounded, hunted. These are real life, life-threatening, fear-inducing circumstances. But most of us don't experience life like that. Most of us don't know what it means to be hated or hunted by enemies, especially out here in Minnesota, nice country. Most of us are more like Pam from The Office. When talking about a coworker who doesn't like her, she gave us this gem of a quote. I hate the idea that someone out there hates me. I hate even thinking that Al-Qaeda hates me. I think if they just got to know me, they wouldn't hate me. But just because we haven't been hunted down by enemies, except for maybe one or fills of us, doesn't mean we can't relate to the fear that David is experiencing here. And that's the beauty of the Psalms this summer. They speak to the super dramatic, as well as to these everyday emotions that we wrestle with and experience. So whether it's big fears you're facing right now or little everyday fears, you got some stuff in there. So what do you fear? What do we fear? Counselor and author Ed Welch points out that there are sort of three big clusters of fear. There's fear of death, fear of man, fear of ruin. And I think that's helpful. And I would add two more. There's probably a religious or a spiritual fear. And then there's like this miscellaneous category. So think briefly through each of these categories and see maybe where some of your fears reside and see how they interact with one another. So fear of death, you fear dying, you fear your spouse dying, you fear your children dying, fear of man, scared, like Lupe said, so scared of what others might think of us that we're scared of being ourselves, fear of rejection, disapproval, betrayal, we fear being let down or hurt by others, some of us again, fear of ruin, you fear losing your job, you fear our savings being sapped, we don't know if we'll have enough for our kids or retirement or even tomorrow, especially if gas continues on its current trajectory. There's a religious fear. You fear that God is not pleased with you. That despite your unrelenting and persistent effort and work, you are not and never will be enough. Or maybe things are going pretty well for you. So you just constantly live on edge and you're afraid that God is just going to smack you down and teach you stop enjoying things so much. And then there's this miscellaneous category where some of those general anxieties and worries live. And as Doug Wilson points out, anxieties and worries are just fears in seed form. So notice all these have a, just a fear generally of the future. You're afraid you won't Get your to-do list done for the day. Afraid your spouse won't change. Afraid you'll never have a spouse. Fear your kids won't turn out well. Afraid you'll never have kids. Fear of relapse, fear of cancer, fear of suffering, fear of hard work, or even fear of fear itself. So you can add your own in here, but that serves as a general overview of what we fear. So now let's explore why. Why? Why do we fear? A couple reasons. One, 
life is just scary. Can be, straight up. David says right here, look at verse 3, when I'm afraid. When I am afraid. Because the circumstances around him are fear-inducing. Think about it. Look at all those words again that he uses throughout the psalm. Trample on me all day long. Oppressors attack me all day long. They talk poorly about me all day long. They stir up strife. They watch and wait to take me out. Fear is understandable here. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that. It's replete with other examples of fear-inducing situations. Banishment from the garden into the unknown. Murderous siblings. Floods, giants, invading armies, rape, adultery, death. That's our world, right? You can find things to be afraid of everywhere. There's potential danger all around you. You can sometimes feel like a marine iguana. Nobody knows what a marine iguana is. So there's these, there's these iguanas in the Galapagos that live on the rocks where the waves from the ocean break. So they live right on the coast, right on these high rocks. But they go inland to lay their eggs underneath the sand. And then when their babies hatch, they have to make their way out through the ocean. But when their babies are born... They have to make their way through a gauntlet of racer snakes that come once a year for their once a year meal to snatch a baby iguana up. Yeah, there's this clip, starts with two iguanas hatching and then as soon as they come out, they get attacked real quick, they get snatched up. And then it pans over and shows another one hatching and this one's a little more shrewd. It's like he knew he was born into a fallen world and that snakes are the ancient enemy of God. He waits. And the first thing he sees is these two other cousins or siblings being eaten by these snakes. He gets out, he makes his way, and this couldn't have been scripted better in a movie. I encourage you to YouTube it. It runs, it runs towards the rocks, but then like 50 snakes pop their heads out. It almost gets snatched up. It gets wrapped up. It makes its way out of like five different snakes multiple times. Then it makes its way to the rocks and to the safety, and then it bounces, bounces, almost gets clipped in the heels and pulled down, and it makes its way to the coast and up the rocks to safety. And life can feel like that sometimes. And for some of you, it's felt like that for your whole life. From womb to the tomb, it's nothing but danger and hurt and pain. I thought it would be funny, though, if in this great moment of safety and victory, when the iguana finally gets to the stop of the rock, if you just heard, Caw! and a bird swooped down and snatched it up. This author Cormac McCarthy said, there are no absolutes in human misery, and things can always get worse. There are no absolutes in human misery, and things can always get worse. It's a cheerful chap. But in one sense, that seems true. Real danger and suffering all around, and sometimes the suffering does only go from bad to worse. There's no chill, and there's always something to be afraid of in this life. So we fear because life is scary. And we fear because fear pushes back. You think you've maybe conquered it a little bit, but it's always right there to push back. See that after verse four. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? This is David staring at his fear and beating his chest for a second, resolved at this point. 
but then his fear pushes back a little bit. So this thing, you might have heard this acronym, false evidence appearing real is fear. False evidence appearing real. And I get the sentiment, but that's one way fear works is that it pushes back on your courage with actual truth, actual evidence about what is happening now. This is what is happening right now, and then it draws on it. This is what could happen, and then it starts giving you the false evidence and all the hypotheticals and the imaginaries. Oh, you're not afraid, David, eh? You're not afraid. Let me remind you, verse 5 and 6, all day long you're being attacked, and they're just waiting for a chance to end your life. As everybody is whispering, the whole town's talking about it, they can't wait to kill you. That's real. And then it goes on. And then you got to imagine what David's thinking about. Oh, maybe they'll, maybe they'll succeed. And then the kingdom will be without a king. And then your kids will be orphans. And well, your kids will probably die anyway because you don't feed them organic, gluten-free, soy-free, nut-free, dairy-free food. Oh, and the economy is collapsing, David. And your check engine lies on. <laughs> Just multiplies and multiplies and pours you down, pulls you down into its vortex. And if David would have given up right here at this point, his heart would never have been consoled. So we fear because fear pushes back. And then there's one more deeper reason why we fear, and that's unbelief. Look at verse 3 again. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. So when, not if, when you are afraid, where will you put your trust? The emotion of fear itself... Is, is not a, the motion of fear is not a sin in itself. It's an opportunity. It is an opportunity to exercise trust, or, is it, or it is an opportunity to have your lack of trust, your lack of faith exposed. Have so you ever been up on a, on a roof working and you had to get down on a stepladder? Not one of those ladders that leans against the roof. That's too easy. I was doing something for my dad on the roof once, came time to get down. He's got the step ladder. And so I did the straightforward, stretch your toes, try to reach it thing. Couldn't reach it. Turn around, did like the half turn, one leg stretching forward, trying to reach it. Still couldn't feel it. So I had to go in blind. Turn around on my belly, kind of inch my way down, but you, you can't feel the top of the ladder. And my dad's down there holding the ladder, coaxing me down. Trust me, I got you. I'm with you. I got you. I'm not going to let you fall. You're right there. Keep going. Nope. Just froze. And then cried. And then I envisioned what life would be like now that I'm going to live up on this roof. <laughs> I wondered if I could get one of those helicopters that rescue people in the flood from the rooftops. You laugh. I think this happened when I was a kid. This was last week when I was in California. <laughs> But that's what our unbelief is like. Sure, I was exposed right there as cowardly in this regretful event of my life, but something deeper was exposed there. I had an opportunity to trust my dad's voice, even though I couldn't see him. I had an opportunity to trust that he wouldn't let me fall, that he would hold me fast, that he was telling me the truth, that I was right there that he was strong enough to help me in my weakness, that he loved me enough not to kick out the ladder from underneath me just as I was going to reach for it. And I had to trust that he wasn't going to walk away in frustration because I was froze up. But I trusted 
only in what I could see and feel. I only trusted in my own strength and ability to get me down. That's our chance when fear comes. When you are afraid, will you listen to your dad's voice, trust that he is with you, that he is in control, that he knows what he's talking about and that he cares. See, the emotions of fear and worry had me stuck. But faith in this psalm, as Derek Kidner puts it, this faith here is seen as a deliberate act in defiance of one's emotional state, in defiance of one's emotional state. Even though I was inches from the ladder, and for many outside observer, this scene was laughable, but I, I refused to defy the emotion that gripped me. I f feared to defy fear. So often we let our emotions rule and we dare not defy them. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and we listen to our fears. We listen to our emotions instead of God and we learn that our faith is not as strong as we thought it was. So there's a world full of danger. Fear pushes back and our unbelief, they form this complex web to keep us from living boldly and courageously with God. And because it's complex, I'd encourage you, these, these psalms are meant to be sang in community, but they're also meant to be wrestled with in community. You need help to figure out what this complex web of fear is doing in your heart. You need brothers and sisters to help you unravel it and then fight together. So that's, that's our question now. How do we live free? How do we fight fear? Well, our culture has a couple different ways of dealing with fear, and these might have affected you in ways you don't realize. You know, there's like, there's the bravado, just act tough, grow a beard, watch some war movies, listen to Jocko and Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan, and then your cowardice will just go away. There's stoicism. You've got to become so spiritual in stoicism that you can endure all pain and hardship without the display of any emotion or complaint. And there's a Christian brand of stoicism that just resigns itself to suffering and tries to stuff all that emotion down. And Adam explained that really well last week in Psalm 88. You can face fear with sheer optimism. It's like the, the Bob Marley, Akuna Matata approach. And then there's some sort of Christian positivism that slaps a Bible verse on your pain and says, well, God wins in the end, and Romans 8.28, and gives you a pat on the head and says, have some faith and get back out there. And there may be helpful things somewhat in each of these, but they don't provide the deep, deep help we need when battling fear. That's why we love the Bible. The Bible gives us a better approach. It understands the rawness, the reality of fear, and offers the only realistic way forward. And the only realistic way forward, as we've explored a little bit, is trust. Trust. That's the Bible's approach. You fight fear with faith. And that's what David does here in this psalm. You see it two times, three and four, and then back in 11. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. That's what we sang about, trying to trust Jesus more. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. That's how I won't be afraid. This is how the saints have always fought. Consider Daniel 3.17. Three young Jewish men are about to be burned alive. They're about to be burned alive because they refuse to bow down before the statue of a pagan king. And here's what they say. 
If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if he does not, God is free to do what he wants in your pain and in your suffering. That's faith. I hope he will deliver me. I trust he can. I think he's able. I know he's able. But even if he does not, I will not bow down. Do you see how that's better than bravado? That's not Christian positivism. Or consider Job in 1315 in the book of Job. This is a verse I know has been an anchor to some of your souls as you've gone through great suffering. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. This is so much better than stoicism, than optimism. The whole book of Job is him mourning and wrestling with his pain. So he's not just resigned to suffer, but he also doesn't just believe that everything will be okay. He knows he could die, and he knows he could die at the hands of God, who makes alive and who brings death. So you see how they handled that opportunity of fear? Fear and faith are always intermingled. True faith, true hope in God has the opportunity to shine when fear comes. Okay, you say, it's all well and good. When fear comes, trust God. Got it. Thanks for the wise, life-altering counsel. You had to go to seminary for that. So how does it work, though? How does it work? Maybe your faith seems so weak, or you've never had faith. You've never had a reason to God, or a reason to trust God like that. You find it so difficult to functionally trust him that you just cling to the roof of your choice. So how do we grow in faith? I think that's, that's the key question to understanding this psalm. And that's why David goes into verse 8 and 9. Look at that again with me. This is right after fear pushes back. Oh, but you, God, you have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. We fight fear by putting trust in God. And the key to growing in trust is relationship. You have to know someone is strong and able to save you from the fire. And you've got to know that he wants to, that he's on your side. David had to remember that not only was God strong and able to save him, but look at verse, five, verse 8, that he sees his wanderings. In Genesis, a woman named Hagar and her baby are sent away from our father of the faith, Abraham, to wander alone in the desert with her new baby. And it's there that God meets her. It's there that God comforts her. And she calls him. She calls God. You are the God who sees. In my wandering, in my loneliness, in my wilderness, you are the God who sees. After the exodus and the great wandering through the desert, God saw. God was there and God provided at every turn. And this right here is, is why knowing 
the word, the truth about all the facets of God's character, all the stories, all of his wisdom is so absolutely crucial in this battle against fear, against unbelief. John Calvin says this about David in this psalm. It was no small attainment in David that he could thus proceed to praise the Lord in the midst of dangers and with no other ground of support than the word of God. He went on and said, he seemed forsaken and abandoned, but he clung to the word of God. So remember, this psalm is a prayer. When fear darkens, all you can do is sometimes is cry out and cling. You cry out to God and you cling to the word, even though you can't see anything else. So like David, like Hagar, like all the saints of old, you need to know that God sees you in your suffering, whatever it might be. In fact, he's so close to you in your suffering that look at the verse again, he bottles up your tears. You cannot catch tears from a distance. We need even more though. An impotent God can come near and give you a hug. You need some power, some power that can overcome these fears, overcome this unbelief in your heart. So he goes deeper still. And the end of verse nine is one of the hardest verses to believe in all the Bible. Look at it. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. This I know, this I know that God is for me. Me? Surely not me. How? How do I know? How do I know that God is for me when these fears are overwhelming, when I've suffered so much, when everything in life tells me otherwise, when I've rebelled against him so hard? when I've wandered so far, when I'm such a weak Christian, when it's so hard to believe, when like verse one says, life seems to just trample on me. And even worse, when I've trampled all over God's grace and his goodness, how do I know? Because there's one who was trampled for you. Augustine pointed out that grapes need to be trampled to make wine. God in Christ became a sweet grape that allowed himself to be trampled on in order to become fresh wine for your soul to be cleansed and satisfied. He took all these Psalm 56 fears onto himself. Jesus was attacked. Jesus was injured. Jesus was accused. He was plotted against. He was betrayed by his friends and murdered by his enemies so that you, his enemy, could become his friend. Verse 7 hung over each one of us. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. We deserve to be cast down. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. But instead, in wrath, he was cast down for the people by God. The one who was tempted with fear just like us, tempted like us in every way, but he wrestled through it to the point of sweating blood. He's the one who offers you redemption, you who have given in to fear so many times. 
so that you could be free from fear. All those fears that we talked about. He killed death. He ruined ruin. And in him you have complete acceptance, approval, forgiveness, delight, perfection, protection, and love so that you don't have to fear God's disapproval anymore. And so that you don't have to fear not getting all of those things from other mortals you've been looking to to obtain it from. Now, there is no man to fear but the God-man. That's where the power is. That's how you know that he is for you. God demonstrates his love for you. He demonstrates that he is for you and for me. And that while we were yet fear-riddled, anxious, and worried sinners, Christ died for us. You take this love into the center of your very soul and you watch your trust in him grow and your crippling fears dissipate. And you do that again and again and again every time those fears threaten to overwhelm. So the main idea of this text is that we fight fear with faith, but it may be more apt to say that we fight fear with love. Perfect love. That's why... Popular verse, 1 John 4, 18. That's why it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You might expect the opposite of fear to be courage or bravery, but that's not, that's not what the Bible says. The opposite of fear is love. Love casts out this fear. So now it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to another moment of sinful fear. Now we can get up, repent of our misplaced trust, or place your trust in Christ for the first time if you don't know him. There's no other way to handle your fears in this world. Repent of your misplaced trust that has led you to fear the wrong things and act sinfully on behalf of those fears. And like David, you get up. We can give deep thanks to God and walk in the light. We can follow him, taking risks and battling with him bravely and boldly. That's why David wraps up with verse 12 and 13. Look back down. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. That I may walk, that I may live before the God of light and life. Child of God, son of God, daughter of God, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Son of the King, daughter of the King, when you are afraid, put your trust in God Run to his word day after day to learn of his love for you and his wisdom to guide you as you walk in the light, free from fear, now enabled to love God and enabled to love others. Over and over again in the Bible, the command is fear not. Something like 365 times. Fear not, do not be afraid. That's the command. But the command always comes with the promise. Fear not. Why? 
for I'm with you. It's not a command of a distant God. It's the God you need right next to you in your fears. The future is sure, yes. We will one day make it with him. And the past is glorious if you are in Christ. Your sins are forgiven, full redemption. Your justification is set. But you need this present power of the God who is with you in the everyday things if you're going to beat fear. The all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-good, all-caring God who speaks stars and sings universes has your days written in his book, the one who bottles up your tears now and will one day wash them away forever is on your side. And he's with you. This I know, that God is for me. What can mere man do to you? What can fear or death or the grave do to you? What then shall we say to these things, my beloved brothers and sisters? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Lord God, we do believe, help our unbelief. Would you set us free from fear that we might love you, enjoy you, treasure you? Taste and see that you are good, that our fears might drive away, that our fears that you will abandon us or forsake us would be washed away with the truth of your word that you are there, that you care, and that you will never leave us or forsake us. You have all authority in heaven and in earth, and you bring this authority right next to us, right in us, to move us forward, to hold us by our hand every step of our day, even until our hairs are gray, even until the grave. And that grave cannot hold us down as it could not hold you. Amen.